Thursday, Jan 12th, the month like that's going by. My snap is banging today. Guy Adami, Dan Nathan, it is market call. It's 1 p.m. on the East Coast. As I've mentioned, really the only time zone of import. Everybody sort of backs in or out of their time zones based on the East Coast. In just a few minutes, EY from SoFi will be joining us. And fasten your seatbelts, people, because Butters is here. You're going to see him. You're going to feel him. It's going to be banging or fire emoji, whatever yeah, the hell people say. All, all, all of the all, above. This market call brought to you by um, FactSet, Dan, financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. And, of course, SoFi, get your money right all in one app. Well, if you're long the market today, you've gotten your money right, Dan, for now. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know, so John Butters, you know, we get a preview of his earnings insight blog that drops every Friday and we do it here on the Thursday market call here. But John Butters is going to be here in the house to talk about this. I think it's actually a really important uh, report that's coming out tomorrow because, again, you know, we've been so focused on macro data, right, in the lead up to some of this inflationary data. Everyone's trying to gain what the Fed's going to do at the Feb one meeting. We always take a look at that CME FedWatch tool and there's things that are moving in that tool after today's data, but it's really going to be the company earnings data to me that changes the narrative right here. We have an S&P 500 that's up 4% of the year. We have a NASDAQ that's up nearly 5% of the year. That seems like annualize that guy. You know, you, you do that after 12 days, you know, you're going to have a heck of a year in 2023, right? Well, you think that's going to happen? I could, I could probably no. extrapolate, which is a word that I don't know what it yeah. means, but I can say it. And also say, you know, you mentioned the important part That'd be such a great name for a podcast. Maybe yeah, we should be. license that. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. We'll see about that. All right. Let's talk a little bit about the data here because, um, you know, it came in kind of right in line. And, and, and again, you know, year over year, it's down, right? The last print was 7.1 year over year. This print was 6.5%. That was what was uh, expected for the CPI here. And I think it was interesting. David Rosie uh, Rosenberg of Rosenberg Research, you call him Rosie. He tweeted out, um, you know, just as rents and good prices start to deflate, Powell decides his favorite inflation measure excludes products and shelter. He's now targeting less than 30% of the CPI. Why? Because he needs ammo to tighten further into the longest, steepest yield curve inversion since 81. Now, just to be clear, he put that tweet out before the data came out. It doesn't really matter, but I think it's interesting that what Rosie's trying to say here is he's kind of moving the goalposts That's a little exactly bit. right. And, and, and Guy, I got to tell you, because you and I are in the rates lower camp okay really reflective of expected growth but there's a lot of people out there think that the fed is trying to come up with excuses to stay hawkish and continue to raise hit rates higher than what is being forecasted at the moment i think i think that's exactly right and you know again there have been a parade of fed governors officials what have you talking about exactly that the need to stay higher for longer because they're not looking to make the mistakes that have been made in the past and when you said moving the goalposts, that's exactly what popped into my head when I saw this tweet. They're effectively moving the goalposts. So if things seem to be getting better on the inflation front, they will find something that they're not satisfied with. Now, again, the market's sort of calling BS on them, obviously, early this year, and we'll see how long that lasts. Don't be surprised, though, if you continue to see these voices come out and say, hey, folks, I don't know what you're looking at because they clearly don't want asset prices to go higher. But the thing that you mentioned which is so important. And EY from SoFi will speak to that, as will Butters. The Fed, I think we all pretty much understand it. I think to a certain extent, it's been played out, gamed out. What's going to matter now 
are going to be earnings. And you know, you can talk macro all you want, but earnings are still what drives the market. And if the earnings aren't there to substantiate the valuations or the levels we're trading at, then we're going to have a problem. And I think that's something we've been saying for a while now. Yeah, no doubt about it. And you know, when that data came out, again, a lot of people are waiting. It's pre-market. The futures are trading here. And it's we have an S&P futures chart of just kind of yesterday's price action, which was kind of sleepy, right? And, and then into today, and you know, they didn't know what to do, right? Trading this a little bit. Oh, yeah. But EKG. it brings you back... It brings me back to the one-year chart, though, here, guy. And, you know, the, the downtrend is what it is. The 200-day moving average, we're banging up against it right now here. And I just you see that little circle that we have there. That was the day of the November CPI reading. We talked about it yesterday. We had that kind of brief, um, you know, move above the downtrend, above the 200-day moving average. It got rejected. Um, we're back up at those levels. Thoughts on the S&P? Because, again, we're going to talk about bank earnings, and we have a massive amount of them tomorrow morning. J.P. Morgan, Bank America, Citigroup, Wells Fargo. There's a few um, other important names that are reporting. How's the setup in the S&P looking to you? Are we going to get a breakout above it? If you're bullish, which I think most people want to be, what you're hoping is, okay, we got this inflation data out of the way, and now we have bank earnings tomorrow for, if I'm not mistaken, J.P. Morgan City, yeah. Bank of America, and Wells Fargo. And if they come out, and it's, again, they're not all going to say the same thing, but if the tone on the margins is positive, that's probably going to give the market enough uh, oomph to get ourselves through this downtrend line. I am not one of those people that believe that. And, you know, I think we exhaust ourselves here right at this 200-day. If Carter were here, he'd probably say the same thing. And I think people are starting getting themselves excited about these lower inflation numbers, totally disregarding the fact that we're seeing slowdowns all across the board. My sense is uh, Jamie Dimon is not necessarily going to throw cold water on things, but I think he's going to reemphasize some of the comments that he made six, seven, eight, or nine months ago. And I think that might be enough to sort of take some of the um, juice out of this market to the upside. And I think we fail here. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, Diamond did this last quarter guy. He did an interview overseas like days before their earnings. And, you know, it ended up being that the stock was near 50. It was trading a new 52-week lows, maybe even two-year lows or something like that. And, you know, the earnings came out better than expected. The stock rallied a lot. And it actually really outperformed the S&P. If you look at J.P. Morgan's performance versus the S&P from the October lows, it nearly doubled that performance at the highs there. So that one to me is going to be really interesting because the stock has been consolidating here. And if there is a hint of um, increasingly, um, I guess, less cautious tone out of him, that stock is going to party, as you like to say. Um, I'll just look at that thing right there. I mean, that listen, you know, take everything else that we know about what sentiment is as far as banks, as far as the markets, as far as the economy. That's a good looking chart. There's no doubt about that here. Um, I just want to go to one before we get to Liz here, guy, um, the NASDAQ, you know, um, the NASDAQ 100 in general. I am very surprised that we have not seen any major tech companies pre-announce. Um, maybe the dollar coming off. We're going to look at the dollar in a second here. It's given them a little bit of confidence. You've remarked on many occasions that Microsoft, one of the first real pre-announcements of mega cap tech was in late June and Microsoft was warning on on currency, right? And we know the dollar was at, you know, multi-year highs at that point. And your concern has been a lack of demand, especially as we're seeing a lot of layoffs in the tech space. And, you know, if you're doing selling licenses to seats and all that sort of stuff, you're gonna have less of that. Thoughts on the NASDAQ because it's much closer to its 52-week lows and it's much further away from its 200-day yeah. moving average in the S&P. It just feels heavy. It do certainly does. And so the Microsoft, and we said at the time, when Microsoft basically guided on currency, we said 
good news is they didn't guide on demand weakness. The bad news is they didn't guide on demand weakness. And that was not meant to be glib or clever. My point there is it's just a matter of time. It's almost a foregone conclusion that at some point they're going to have to. Just reading the tea leaves. And when you see, to your point, more and more of their customers uh, reducing the amount of seats effectively stands to reason that that's going to affect Microsoft. And, you know, the Microsoft quarter, if you go back the last couple of quarters, I mean, they've been fine, but they haven't been great. And Microsoft has traded at a premium valuation, well-deserved, but it's no coincidence that this stock made its all-time high around the same time the Fed pivoted. So as valuations become more and more in people's purview, Microsoft is not immune from that. And your point that you've made uh, for a few shows now you saw the Satya Nadella interview from CNBC uh, Asia. I think he was in India. And he seemed extraordinarily concerned, so much so that Jim Cramer reduced or got out of, I don't know which one, but I know at least sold yeah. some of his Microsoft position in his charitable trust. And that's a name that he's loved forever, Dan. Yeah, I mean, you know, the stock closed the year. I think it was uh, 239. It traded down to 220. It got a downgrade from UBS. Um, you know, Satya's comments were taken as a bit of a soft downgrade or at least seeing some kind of headwinds um you know from an economic standpoint he was talking about recessionary environments in different parts of the world likely to be in the u.s for some time you know it's funny i took a couple things away from it it was a 23 minute interview and you know he seems very confident in the strategy in which he they have been executing on and he's done an extraordinary job they've even done an extraordinary job in m&a under his um you know tenure so you know he's He's the right guy for that job. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think he's seen, other than the pandemic since he took over, a meaningful downturn, an economic downturn. So it'll be interesting to see how that works. But I think to your point, it really is a story of valuation. So the stock went from 240 to 220. Now it's back at 220. We're going to get those earnings a week after next. And, and I think that's going to be, um, you know, that's going to be the main event when we get, you know, all the major big tech names. Again, I'm surprised we did not see um, a downgrade in guidance or pre-announcement to any of them. All right, guys, let's get into it. This is one of your favorite parts of the week. We have, as you like to call her, EY from SoFi. I call her just Liz Young, at Liz Young Strat on the Twitter here uh liz welcome hi guys <laughs> happy thursday you know if we grew up together which we didn't and obviously i'm significantly older but i probably would have called her elizabeth all through high school because that's you know that's my want to do where other people say one thing i want to sort of go the yeah. other way and i know in the in the young family i guarantee over christmas when you're all wearing your feety pajamas you're elizabeth i'm elizabeth you know, or lizzie depending on who you ask but well, very lizzie, rarely you know liz I just put an image in my head, and, I, and all of our, our listeners, our viewers know that you are from the fine state of Wisconsin, probably Milwaukee, and I could just see Liz growing up in that home in Milwaukee and having this kind of strange Italian guy living above the garage, and his name was <laughs> Very Guy happy days, Bobby. by the way. What no, the listen, if you think about what you just described, yeah. and I know yeah. we got butters, and I apologize for doing this, but you brought it up. I mean, Happy Days was in the great state of Wisconsin, sure number was. one. They had a family. Actually, they were a family of five before they somehow just got rid of Chuck altogether. He made it like three episodes <laughs> and he was gone. But then this strange older Italian dude moved upstairs in their garage. Yeah. That, of course, being Arthur Fonzarelli, played by Henley Winkler, who was uh, neither strange nor Italian. Back to you, Dan. Well, you know, I mean, listen, and you could also be Lenny or Squiggy from the spinoff of uh, Laverne and Shirley. There's no doubt about that. Wow. So you got to, all right, Liz, well, we're going to go with the Carmine, have, the big ragu. We are so off the rails. Off the rails. Yeah, sorry, Liz, I'm going to stop. 
And we got a lot of stuff to do today. All right, let's get, Liz, I'd love to get your reaction. You know, again, we've been focused on the CPI print, it feels like, since the last CPI print in your note that dropped on the SoFi blog today. I think that's SoFi.com backslash blog, or a guy would probably just say slash blog. You want to look at services, but I want to get your quick take on inflation and the stock market's reaction this morning. Yeah, first, quick shameless plug for Milwaukee. There is a statue, a bronze Fonz statue on the Riverwalk in downtown Milwaukee. So if anybody ever wants to visit it, great photo op. Okay, CPI today. (laughs) Bang on expectations, which obviously the market is cheering. The expectations were for it to come down quite notably, and we have a negative month-over-month print. These are all good things, right? This is what we need to see happening. We need to see the trend continue downward, and that's working. The note that I put out today, I purposely chose services because I expected that services would continue to be kind of the problem child in CPI. Now, they did come down marginally, but they also continue to be the problem child. Now, shelter falls into that category of services. We all know that shelter is exorbitantly expensive right now. Over time, over the course of 2023, I would expect that to come down. But here's the reason why I think everybody needs to look at services. We were so obsessed with goods for such a long time. Used cars were so expensive. Everything that we did was so expensive. The semiconductor shortage, all of it, right? Then we get into services. The reason that this is more important is because they're sticky. This is the stuff that sticks around. This is the stuff that isn't as affected by supply. It's going to stay higher for longer. Mm -hmm. And the way that I would just finish this statement is that this takes longer than we think. This takes longer than most people think. This will take longer than uh, I think the market thinks. And yes, we can cheer this number. We can cheer that there's a relaxation in inflation. But 5.7% core and 6.5% headline is really not good problematic and you know again people will look at the trajectory and obviously things are coming down but to your point ey services are extraordinarily sticky and when you talk about our economy we are a service economy i mean we're probably a 70 percent or so service economy and it takes a lot longer for these things to abate and i do think listen the fed can be moving the goalposts all they want i do think they understand what they're looking at much more clearly this time And they see exactly what Liz points out. And they say, you know what? We still have a bit of an issue here. So as many people want to say the Fed is doing it wrong or they're getting it wrong or we're going to be lowering rates by the end of the year, take a look at what Liz's note says and bear in mind the fact that this is extraordinarily tough to defeat. And I think they're trying to do it correctly. It's just a question of will they do it? More importantly, what will break on the way to getting us there. And that's right. really what the market is not taking into consideration. Well, and the other thing, and I don't want to be, I don't want to be hyperbolic about this, but so services PMI fell into contraction in the last reading. So below 50, it's never been in contraction without a recession. It, look, it's possible. Anything is possible. There's a first time for everything, but this would be the first time for a lot of things, right? This would be the first time that we got out of an inflation problem like this without a recession. It'd be the first time that we saw contractionary services and manufacturing PMI without a recession. And Guy, to your point, if we rewind 40 to 50 years, our economy was so dependent on manufacturing, of course goods was really important. And we got so used to watching that, but we have transitioned, that is no longer the case. Services is actually the much more important side of it, employs a ton more people today. And one of the arguments that I heard today on CNBC and elsewhere was that, oh, but these inflation numbers are already overstating 
the reality and you know things are coming down these are all lagging you know what else is lagging is labor numbers so mm -hmm. all of these arguments about labor being so strong i don't really believe that and i think that those are on even more of a lag than cpi yeah so it's interesting when you talk about that that stat you've never seen the contraction um in in that that in that services data with that wasn't followed by a recession. You know, another thing that really seems like it's signaling a recession guy is the 10 year U S treasury yield. So mm -hmm. we've been drawing a one year uptrend, um, you know, for the better part of the last year. And in this last period, when we've seen rates come off from early November, we haven't really seen a check back to the actual uptrend. There we are right now at three and a half um, percent or so we're still above that 200 day moving average. And again, you know, guy, if we were to break that uptrend and, and kind of touch that 200, which it has not touched the more than 13 months or so what would the signaling be there to you it would mean exactly what you just said that it, the economy continues to ratchet down in a meaningful way everything that liz just outlined and what's outlined in her note and you know is it different this time absolutely not are we able to dodge all these different things effectively happening at the same time and we don't even mention the fact that in addition to rates we're talking about a balance sheet that they're trying to reduce which yeah. for whatever reason nobody wants to take into consideration i think that's important as well but if this 10-year yield which again i think we've collectively thought is going lower for quite some time starts to meaningfully decelerate in terms of yields tlt going higher means an inversion i think is going to go back out towards 80 basis points if not one percent and i think people are going to take a long hard look and say wait a second Historically, this has been bullish for high valuation, high growth stocks. In this environment, maybe not so much, especially if you start to hear more layoffs from these companies and more slowdowns from these companies. So I don't know how lower rates is bullish in this environment, Dan. Yeah, you know, the other thing I'll just say, and I'm going to throw the Dixie chart up here, the U.S. dollar index. And I think this is really interesting, especially again, and we'll talk to John Butters about this a little bit as we head into earnings season, because, you know, we've seen some massive rallies. We talked about them that May, April last year. Then we had that kind of June, July, and then we had that October. And they were all really in and around earnings season. And a lot of it had to do with sentiment got really bad. The numbers weren't as bad as when they came out um, and, and stocks continue to rally on the way out, you know. All of those rallies, for the most part, happened to coincide with a rising U.S. dollar, right? And here we are now. We saw the Dixie almost touch 115 um, in September, and we're at 102 right now. And it really feels like easily going to 100 right here. Liz, does this play into this kind of soft landing narrative that becomes – it's becoming very – pervasive uh, okay first things first it's also as I, I think um is consensus right now that the first half of this year is going to be really bad in the markets right and then we're going to kind of kind of find our way in the second half it seems like there's a lot of consensus thinking soft landing the worst is behind us once we get to the second half of this year yeah it is pervasive i also think it's naive because the soft landing is is right now very predicated upon inflation is coming down and that's what we should be excited about isn't that what our, our goal was yes but again you have to like how does inflation come down it doesn't come down by just an act of god it comes yeah. down because people stop buying as much stuff or doing as much stuff or companies are losing pricing power so they lower the prices that's how inflation comes down. So there are there's a flip side always to that coin. And when you look at the dollar in particular, now no, look, this is good for some things, right? This is good for exports from the US. This is good for multinational corporations. 
I, however, don't think that the big multinationals are what was going to lead us out of this anyway. So it's good for some of those earnings, but it's not going to solve all the problems. Exports from the U.S. I mean, trade is a very, very small proportion of our overall GDP. So that'd be great if exports went up and imports went down. But again, not it's not going to be enough to offset a lower consumption number. So it's okay to to say that soft landing is still alive as a possibility, but I think it is actually just as unlikely as it was three months ago. Yeah, a couple of things here real quickly. Um, yesterday, I detailed a uh, bearish trade on the GLD, the ETF that tracks the shiny metal that Guy has been bullish of. Um, again, um, you know, this was not uh, something that I was kind of making a long-term view. I was looking at the February expiration. I was looking for a retest of that uptrend and and then basically get back towards that 200-day um, moving average back in fills again, February expiration. So that's kind of up 1% today. It's in my face a little bit. I will tell you that I added a little bit to it today. Guy, what's gold? telling you right here again i know that dollar weakness that's helping it here um but anything about the data that you want to extrapolate to gold well i you know i guess the cpi number came in in the on the screws so it did not um basically impede this lower left upper right trajectory that gold's been on i think if it came in you know six anything six seven or higher i think your trade would have worked out really well because the market would interpret that as Fed mm -hmm. still in play, Fed still being in place, theoretically should put some pressure on gold. That's what it's done. So this to me, and I never use the term, but it's about as Goldilocks as you could possibly get for precious metals. And you saw the subsequent move. Gold is moving for fundamental reasons, in my opinion, not least of which central banks buying it hand over fist and very quietly silver starting to get off the mat as well over the last few months. So precious metals, I think, are telling the story that you know, central banks are pushing a lot of buttons at some point, they will break something, getting back to my earlier comment. And the yeah. place to be when something breaks, in my opinion, is the gold market, Dan. All right, Liz, going back to your note here, because I thought this was really interesting. You had a chart of mortgage uh, application activity. And again, you know, we talked about how services are really important, but we also know that the consumer, you know, makes up 70% of U.S. GDP here. And again, you know, we've had lots of periods over the last 20 years where consumers in this country have used their house um, in a low rate environment as a bit of a, a piggy bank. Talk to me about what you're thinking as far as just what the mortgage activity and the drop in it of late means for, uh, let's say, the consumer in the broader economy, right? Yeah, I mean, huge drop. So if you just look at mortgage activity, the numbers are here on the screen, down 81% since the peak in early 2021, 67% down since the end of 2021. Now, that hasn't been entirely reflected in home prices or rents yet. And the reason for that is because you don't see it reflected until those things change hands. So you have to sell mm -hmm. your house and have somebody else buy it in order for it to be reflected. And I think that that entire cycle kind of got exhausted already. The rent stuff will update a little bit quicker because obviously those turn over faster. But this is a really lagging part of the services sector, a really lagging part of the economy. I would expect, though, because this has been such a steep drop off that you see home prices come down quite a bit through 2023. And that is not a concern necessarily for people trying to buy a house. But Dan, to your point, if you're using it for a home equity loan or if you're using it as equity in the home and you bought at the heights of these home prices, you're going to end up underwater and then you're almost forced to wait until you want to sort of exit that position, if you will. So the thing about housing is it's an unrealized loss or gain until you sell the house, mm -hmm. right? But 
it is realized in your sentiment. So if you feel like you're underwater on your house, not a great feeling every single month when you pay your mortgage. And, and real quick, Dan, it's and I'm not a housing expert at all, but I think I understand assets and liabilities. And for many people, the asset they have is not necessarily their home, mm-hmm. but their mortgage. You know, think about what people did. They refinanced probably longer term mortgages at trough rates. So for them to sell their home now, they probably, for most people, they have to buy another home at an entirely new interest rate. So I think people are doing, are making the determination that, wait a second, I sort of like where my 30-year or 15-year is. If I sell my home, understanding that I'm going to have to take a new mortgage out at a much higher rate, the math probably doesn't work. So that's the push-pull right here. So I totally understand what's going on with mortgage applications. But to Liz's point... It's just a matter of time, almost a foregone conclusion before prices start to follow. And then one has to wonder, what does the market do under those that scenario, Dan? Yeah. Well, you know, those are great points. And let's throw up a chart of the XHB, the ETF that tracks the home builders in this. And there's some other stuff in there. It's not just a, a pure home builder sort of thing. But, you know, we get asked questions all the time. You know, guy, you just said, I'm not a housing expert of this and that. You know, like when you think about this, someone would say, Liz, you just showed us the data on mortgage applications and they're crashing here. Why would the housing sector, why would the stocks or at least an ETF that tracks them, why would it be rallying? Well, at some point, you know, when when the ETF, the XHB or some of these home builders were trading near multi-year lows down a whole heck of a lot. I think they got cut in half from their highs, right? About um, 18 months ago, when we we're in a housing frenzy. You know, markets start to anticipate some of that. I just think, be interesting. It's getting towards a technical resistance level. I want to throw up really quickly, though, um, the Wells Fargo chart. And, Guy, we spent some time on this on Fast Money a couple nights ago. There was um, a story that Wells Fargo, once the number one player in mortgages, is stepping back from the housing market. And the details of that is, like, unless you had an account at Wells Fargo, they are not servicing new mortgages anymore. They're not pricing them. Those are the sorts of headlines you probably want to see when the sentiment is where it is as it relates to uh, mortgages, as it relates to the supply-demand dynamics. Guy, talk to me a little bit about that. That's exactly right. And the point that I probably made awkwardly, but I think you made better the other night on the show, I don't think it necessarily moves the needle for the stock. And that proved to be accurate. But I think to your point that you made, and I think Tim made it as well, it's not necessarily what it does to the stock. It's the signal that it sends, right? And I think you're going to start looking back. Like, remember back in January when Wells Fargo made that announcement, you're going to start connecting dots. Well, a headline like this, Dan, is going to be one of those dots. Yeah. All right, Liz, real quickly here on banks. You know, we we spoke on, on the tape on Monday. And listen, people, if you cannot get enough of Liz Young <laughs> – on market call on Thursdays or on the IC with the who guy? Who's she on with the IC? Well, typically oh, no. she goes, no. she's probably on the IC a few times a week with the SDs yeah. on the IC. Yeah. All right. So if, if, if that's not enough and you need more Liz Young, you can check her out on the tape podcast that drops every Mondays. She's going to be doing what we did at IRL is we we're in the studio um, uh, this Monday. That was a great conversation. Really enjoyed that. It was guy and myself and you It had a different cadence than this. This is a very visual medium here. You, you didn't yeah. even have your hair done. You showed up like, I, from the gym or something like that. You're like, it's just fantastic. audio, right? Yeah. Like All a right. big high pony. I could do yeah. that. Maybe I should uh-huh. have a high pony. You can high swing pony. around uh, like the funds. Yeah. 
All right, real quickly here on the bank. So you, you heard us talking earlier. We all know it. You know, a huge chunk of the XLF is reporting tomorrow morning here. Um, many of them have had really big runs. JP Morgan's outperformed. Um, you know, Bank of America has come off those October highs um, pretty, um, you know, pretty healthily. And then we also see Wells Fargo. Um, City, we threw that chart up there yesterday, guy, during market call. That one looks like it's trying to bottom. I mean, the charts look healthy. This XLF is a funky ETF because we know that Berkshire Hathaway is the largest holding. But I just threw it up there because I thought it looked nice. Uh, thoughts here. Are we going to see, <laughs> gonna see a breakout? Because this resistance level, you know, in and around this 35 and a half level in the XLF, not asking you to comment on the chart. Um, you get above there on fundamental news. We might be out of the woods a little bit in some of these banks. Yeah, I mean, look, broad, like big picture, if we go into a recession, financials will get hit like every other stock will get hit. However, I don't think they get hit as hard because they haven't really had some of these big rallies. They haven't participated in them except since October. Then they started to come back. I think that 2023, and I said this in my outlook, is a valuation story above all else. And financials are just trading at really nice valuations. And if the story also is about fundamentals and is about how well can companies weather a storm or how long can they get through something with durability and make it on the other side, I think financials look pretty good in that scenario too. Also, we're now hearing, I mean, we heard about all the tech layoffs. Now it's bled into financials, right? Goldman laid off, I think, 3,200 people yesterday. Uh, I believe there was a BlackRock had an announcement. So there probably are going to be more of those. The market has liked it when companies are showing the ability to cut costs and trim some things in order to meet earnings and to be able to reinvest in the business or be shareholder friendly. And financials are doing all of those things. Of course, it's not good when people lose their jobs, but as a shareholder, if you're looking for shareholder friendly companies and good stewards of capital, I think you're getting that in the financials. Before we bring in Butters and Dan, I'm going to allow you to do that because you'd much better than I. Watch me tie a ribbon on this whole freaking first 28 minutes of the show. I happen to know for a fact that either in middle school or high school, EY portrayed Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> Wizard of Oz, of course, I saw when it came out uh, in 1938. We went to the local uh, theater in the city. Oh, wow. It was wonderful. It was really good. <laughs> I mentioned all of this, Dan, because you just said a term. Are they out of the woods? And if you recall at one point in that great movie, The Wizard of Oz, they sang a song about being out of the woods after they got out of the poppy fields and all that shit, only to have to go to the witch's castle, which at a point there was pretty problematic. That's exactly what's going on here with banks. People think they're out of the woods, but they still got to deal with the Wicked Witch of the West at some point later on. And that's going to come in the form of earnings and commentary back to you. Yeah, so on that episode, Guy, where Liz joined us on Monday of On the Tape, there was also Danny Moses with his former partners of Seawolf Capital, uh, Vinny Daniel and Porter Collins. And those guys were all three portrayed um, in the big short, the Michael Lewis book and the movie by my, uh, Adam McKay. And, you know, interestingly, and this is there's no joke here, um, those guys are really good on banks. They're really good on financials. Liz, I know that you listened to that episode. And I think Porter had a little PSA for the listener. He's like, if you have money at one one of these big banks and it's sitting in a checking account, get it over to a savings account because you're going to earn 4%. And part of their bearish thesis right now on the banks is that, you know, that pull of capital is going to really weigh on earnings as long as rates are this high. Because part of the narrative has been, this is great for banks, right? With banks, with, with rates going higher. Let's see what they have to say about that kind of, um, you know, what's happening to those balances and, and, and the like here. All right, let's do this thing here. You know, John Butters, he's a senior earnings insight 
uh, analyst over there at FactSet. We get to look at his work every Thursday before it drops on Fridays here. But here he is in front of Q4 earnings season. We're going to break down a bunch of big um, trends. John Butters, welcome to Market Call. Great. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. All right, bud, we've been tracking your work, like we said, over the last couple of months, and you've been talking about how um, analysts have been revising their earnings lower over the course of the quarter here. And that seems to have been accelerating over the course of 2022 into earnings, right? And you had a great piece of data a couple months ago that we've quoted a couple times on here and on our podcast on the tape is that, you know, over the last 25 years, strategists usually overestimate S&P earnings one year out by, I think, about seven and a half percent or so, which is pretty astounding, especially when you consider where S&P earnings consensus is right now for 2023. I think we could all agree, maybe not you right now, we make a lot of qualitative judgments about this sort of stuff. You rely on the data. That's why we're considered, I don't know, talking heads or so. Um, but talk to us a little bit about, because I, you know, listen, Guy and I clearly think S&P earnings are too high. They've come down for the current quarter. We're going to start getting this, uh, the reports and the guidance. Where are we right now? now for Q4 and how important is it to you? Because it looks like they've lowered estimates at a higher rate than they have in the past here. I think starting in September 30th, I think the data that you had was that uh, S&P earnings were expected to decline three and a half percent for the current quarter. Now expected to be 4.3 or that's how much they've been cut. Excuse me. Yeah, this is a trend. It really started last quarter. It's continued this quarter in terms of seeing higher estimate cuts than average. So for this quarter, the numbers came down 6.5% from September 30th to December 31st. And that's above, you know, if you look anywhere between the 10-year average and the 20-year average, it's usually a 3 to 5 percentage point decline. And we did see more negative guidance as well. 67 companies issued negative guidance this quarter. That's above the five-year average of 57 and, and slightly above the 10-year average of, 50, of uh, 65, excuse me. So as a result, as you said, coming into the quarter, uh, the analysts were looking for earnings growth of 3.5%. And because of those revisions, we're now looking for a decline in earnings year over year of 4.3%. And if we do have a decline in earnings, that'll be the first time we've seen a year over year decline going back to the pandemic third quarter of 2020. It's amazing that people are starting to come to grips with this. I mean, your work has outlined this for quite some time, John. But I guess my question to you is people still seem to be too enthusiastic. And I'm not asking you to play stock market by any stretch, but you've been doing this for a while. Does the market at these levels appear to be too enthusiastic as well? Well, it's interesting. If you look at the forward P.E. ratio today, it's 17, and that's actually in line with the 10-year average of 17. But if we look at the, the expectations for 2023 going forward, analysts have taken down their numbers for the first half of the year. So just over the last few weeks, we saw for first quarter of 2023 and second quarter of 2023, Instead of expecting earnings growth, we're now looking for a decline in earnings for both those quarters. So we could potentially be seeing three straight quarters of earnings decline. But to your point, Guy, if we look at the second half of 2023, still very optimistic for growth. Third quarter growth at about 5%, fourth quarter at almost 11%. And as a result, for the full year, looking for about 5% growth. So again, as always, we'll say we're going to watch the guidance, watch the revision to see if we start to see those second half numbers start to come down. Okay, so as we as we start maybe the first quarter of earnings that are going to be negative, maybe there's two or three quarters in a row that are negative, I'm going to look on the bright side and try to talk about this when they stop being negative. Do you feel like analysts revise upward more quickly than they revise downward? I think we've all been a little disappointed with how long it took for analysts to start revising earnings downward and sort of come to grips with what was happening. If and when an earnings recession is over, 
do you think they start going back up? Is it like one or two quarters and they're back up or are they, are they just as conservative on the other side? Uh, they tend actually, tend, well, there's actually not a lot of examples of when analysts actually revise their estimates upward. Typically it's downward, as we noted, you know, if you look at those, any of those long-term average, it's typically down to three to 5%. But if we do look at the pandemic as an example, coming out of the pandemic, they were a little slow to revise their estimates upwards. And then we saw rapidly, I think it was four to five straight quarters of the estimates going up. And not only that, we did see the companies become more positive in this guy and their guidance. It was one of those rare stretches in late 2020 through 2021, where more companies were actually guiding numbers higher than positive. So uh, that is something we'll have to keep an eye out for. Again, probably not the next couple of quarters, but we'll see if that takes place more in the second half of 2023. All right, John, let's talk about on the sector level here, because you, you've done a lot of work there. And, and again, I think a big part of the 2022 story was the contribution from energy and some of the declines in some of the other sectors. And I know that you had a report out, um, uh, I think a couple months ago, expecting that the energy sector, which has been a huge contributor, like as we said, and continues to be into 2023, at some point that's going to trail off a little bit. Talk to us about how you're thinking about energy. A, we know that it's less than 10% of the weight of the S&P 500, but it's been a huge contributor on the earnings front. And then are there other sectors that you have your eye on that could be, um, you know, emerging as, uh, as uh, picking up some slack, let's say, of the energy sector as it trails off into mid-year? Yeah, well, as we, you know, as we've talked about the last few quarters, uh, energy's really been the driver of earnings growth for the entire S&P 500. In the second quarter and the third quarter, if you took energy out, we would have had year-over-year -year declines. But as you noted, it's the comparisons are getting more difficult for energy. And even though it's still expected to be uh, to have the highest growth this quarter at roughly 62%. It's really not enough at this point to to drive uh, you know overall growth for the index. You take energy out, we'd be looking for a decline of 9% in earnings for this quarter. Um, and then to your question about what's what to look for going forward, it is interesting to note as we go into 2023, energy is really only expected to be a positive contributor for the first quarter. After that, it's a negative contributor. But one sector that analysts are very optimistic about is the consumer discretionary sector particularly Amazon. They're expecting a large rebound in Amazon this year. So if we are going into a recession, uh, you know, I think it's going to be difficult for consumer discretionary earnings to really drive the boat for the whole S&P 500. I, I agree with that as well. I think more likely, and I'm not suggesting, but you know, the counter to that is I think more people are getting excited about Amazon and the stock, not necessarily how they're going to do, but the people look at this stock that is now a few weeks ago, at least, making multi-year lows and saying, you know what, regardless of how their business shakes out, I mean, this is a stock that we want to be, we've been dying to buy and we want to get our arms around in the second half. So it's not necessarily, I think, going to be how earnings do for a name like Amazon. It's just going to be about the sentiment in the stock market. With that said, to your point, it's going to be very difficult for that sector to do well in what we appear, or at least what we think, is about to transpire. And again, you look at industrials, slow down. Is that going to be good for industrials? Uh, probably not. And again, when energy was a big part of the driver, one has to wonder where you're going to get the leadership from, John, in terms of earnings. So, Dan, that's how I sort of uh, dissect this entire thing. Liz, are there some sectors other than banks? You just told us a little bit how you feel about financials. But when you're thinking about that could surprise the upside that might bottom prior to, let's say, the worst of the revisions for the S&P 500 that you're focused on. Uh, so healthcare, I, I have been bullish on for a while. I'm still bullish on that long term. I think consumer discretionary could surprise. And I say that because it's a growthy sector, 
but consumers are very fickle and they change their minds on a dime. So if the data gets weaker and we go into a recessionary scenario, consumers stop spending pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So those would take a further dive quickly, but then I think they can also bounce pretty good on the other side, especially if the labor market doesn't have a typical recessionary drawback. Yeah, well, that, that's a good one here. John, I'm just curious, like how much, how, how focused you are? You heard us talking about the dollar and, and really how much the U.S. dollar index has come off. And we know as far as S&P earnings are concerned, you know, these large multinationals make up a disproportionate amount of the weight here. So when you think about the dollar, if it were to continue like its its path lower, let's say the Dixie goes from 115 to 100. I mean, that, that could quickly turn into um, a tailwind. And then the other thing for corporate earnings, and then the other point, and again, this is all predicated on the fact that the consensus view that we have is some sort of soft landing in 2023, maybe like a short, shallow-ish recession here. And then the other thing is about rates. We know that companies binged on debt, right, in the, in the lead up to this current period here. If rates were to come in, that's also something that could be a tailwind, at least to valuations for some of these stocks. Yeah, well, we did an analysis of the first 20 or so companies that have reported, and it is interesting to note that over half of those companies did see a negative impact from foreign currency, but those are also mostly companies that had a November quarter end. So it will be interesting to see what sort of commentary we get from the companies that have a December year end. But certainly foreign currency and labor costs were two of the factors that, that most of the companies cited or the most companies cited as having a negative impact on Q4 earnings. So obviously it's a small sample We'll see how it plays out for the rest of this earnings season. John, your work is unbelievable. We're fortunate to have you. Thanks for being here. Dan, what do they call when people are in, in real life? What do they say? IRL. Oh, oh that's I thought that was like yeah. a transit line. Oh, shit. Sorry. J John Butters <laughs> in real life. It's so good to have you. Thank you for that. You should check out John's work. I know most of you do. Thank you, John. Obviously. Thank you, Elizabeth Young. Uh, who portrayed Dorothy in the great uh, <laughs> high school public production of Wizard of middle Oz? Middle school, middle school. I was thirteen. Middle school. Apologies, that was what I was thinking. But more, I think almost as importantly, thanks to our audience. As always, I want to thank SoFi. Get your money right, all in one app. Thank you, FactSet Financial Data and Analytics, powered by Tomorrow. They're also our data provider. John, thank you. Liz, thank you. Dan, thank you. Fast Monday night at five o'clock is going to be fascinating. Hasta la vista, baby. All right, guys. Thanks a lot.